Welcome home and welcome to the Mount Carmel podcast. Today, we'll be hearing from Pastor Dave Wallen teaching on the topic of Abraham. The intro and outro music today is provided by one of our guest physicians, Christian Hoff. get enough coffee yet? I haven't. But uh, what a beautiful morning. Woke up, did some bird watching this morning. I don't really like, like uh, bird watching, but I like the bird watching leader. So um, I had to go support my daughter and we saw some birds. So it was fun. And it was a beautiful morning. So um, and we saw pileated, pileated woodpecker. So that was kind of fun. So we had some good birds. Right, Anastasia? Yeah, she was there too. Well, as we continue on here, we've got two um, episodes uh, from uh, Abraham's life that I want to take a look at today, and we got a little condensed uh, time today, so we'll be, we'll be kind of cruising through this. Um, and both of these episodes um, are kind of tough. Um, they, they, uh, um, they cause us to maybe ask some questions about God and, and uh, our relationship with him and his relationship with us. And so we'll be grappling with those things today. We'll begin uh, talking about interceding in faith and um, asking the question, you know, why would God do such a thing? Why would God do such a thing? And that, I think we can ask these, this question for both of the episodes that we're going to look at today. And there's a good chance that you've asked this question in your lifetime in your experience with God. Um, maybe you've tried to answer this question um, in your lifetime. But uh, a lot of times, this is, um, the answer to this is unknowable and um, unanswerable. We don't know what God is thinking, right? That's way above our pay grade. We can't get into the mind of God. Um, we don't know um, why God does what he does. You think of Job, right? As he answers the, asks the question and, and, and God says, gird up your loins, uh, brace yourself. And then he just, you know, he doesn't answer his question. He just says, this is, what I've, this is what I've done. You know, who are you to even ask and, and, and venture into my mind? And uh, Job's like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. You know, he's like, I don't even know what I'm asking. Um, uh, so... 
Um, but that doesn't change the fact that there are times when we have strong opinions about what God would do, about what God should do, and to whom God should do it, right? Um, so why would God do such a thing? That's a, pr- a question that was probably on Abraham's mind when God revealed his destination. At the beginning of, of chapter 18, Abraham interrupted the Lord and his messengers as they walked by. And he invites them to stay for lunch and um, enjoy some good Hebrew hospitality, right? Um, and uh, and that, I, I think that Jewish emphasis on hospitality really grows out of this episode in the beginning of chapter 18 as Abraham, I always think it's funny, like, um, when we think about the time it took to prepare what he prepares here, because, you know, when we have company, if I have company that drops in, I'm just going to call Domino's or something like that, or order from King's Walk, some takeout or something fast, you know, but he, like, goes and gets a, you know, an animal, slaughters it, skins it, does all that, I mean, that takes a, I would assume that would take a while, I've never tried this myself, right? And then, and then cooks it. Um, it was quite the, the prep, but he, uh, he does this for these, uh, these uh, um, messengers as they walk by. Um, and while they're feasting on hamburgers, the Lord makes a stunning revelation. He says, when I come back in a year, you're going to, you're going to have a baby. Um, finally, the promise has a timeline, right? One more year. Good, because I'm about 100 years old, right? Um, but then it's back to business for the Lord. And he and his two angels continue on their way, and Abraham follows them. And uh, in an interesting little uh, um, dialogue between the, the three messengers, the Lord contemplates whether to let Abraham in on his intentions here. And... Uh, um, And then um, he decides to fill him in. He says, we're heading to Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, There's been an outcry against the cities, and if what I heard is true, smackdown, right? Everyone's heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, These two doomed cities have become synonymous for wickedness and evil and destruction, perhaps for many of us, it's linked to God's judgment and his destructive wrath. But Abraham didn't have social media back then. He wasn't informed on, maybe, on the total depravity of the cities. After all, in chapter 14, the king of Sodom had treated Abraham, Abraham um, quite fairly. Um, and his nephew Lot lived in Sodom. So there may have been a few bad apples, maybe, maybe more than a few bad apples, but um, uh, surely there had to be a minority, at least, of good apples in Sodom and Gomorrah. Would, what, would God wipe out the good with the bad? Why would God do such a thing? So this is kind of the, the, the situation, the setting that we have here. Um, God is heading there. Uh, Abraham is, uh, is contemplating this. God decides to let Abraham in on this. I, I should note, um, in between our, our episode with Hagar and, um, and, and what we're reading in 18 here, 
um, Abraham has finally had his name changed. And, and uh, um, uh, in chapter 17, a pretty significant event happens that we're not covering, and that is uh, the uh, covenant of circumcision is introduced. Um, and God changes Ab- Abram's name to Abraham. Um, and uh, so um, we can uh, not be confused anymore, um, going back and forth between the names. But um, let's look at uh, chapter 18. Whoop. Chapter 18 and uh, this episode. Let me pull up my... Beginning in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood, still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep uh, away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it for, uh, from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, O Lord, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So this fascinating account in Genesis 18 of Abraham praying to God, pleading with God, very delicately negotiating with God, right, uh, interceding in faith. And he's at, at once bold and he's humble. Um, he's delicate, but he's forceful here. Um, my colleague, Pastor Scott Groerud at Faith Lutheran, um, had some really interesting observations about um, how Genesis 18 teaches, uh, teaches us about, about prayer. Um, he says uh, five things about, about um, uh, lessons about prayer. When you combine uh, this interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah with um, the earlier episode in chapter 18 as he hosts the messengers from God, And he says the first thing is that Abraham bargained with God out of his faith in God. He knew God was faithful. And when you think about, you know, his experience so far, I mean, the promise hasn't been delivered, but boy, God, he has been delivered, right? Delivered from his foolishness in Egypt, 
uh, God has, has uh, gently corrected him with his uh, um, uh, mistaken faith uh, in, in their dealings with Hagar and Ishmael. He's had the promises renewed in, in dramatic ways. So he knew God was faithful, and, and that gave him the confidence to, to bargain with God here. The second thing, Abraham was boldest in his prayer for Lot and Sodom, not for himself. Um, when you look at the beginning of 18, you know, he was, he was, it was more just kind of given to him. He wasn't as bold and like, okay, yeah, but what, you know, uh, can we move this along or anything like that? Um, we've seen that um, uh, throughout uh, the, his, his life here. Um, but for, for Lot and Sodom, he really kind of um, gets down and bargains. Um, we're going to see in the next episode we look at the sacrifice of Isaac. There's no bargaining there either, you know. He just goes along with it. But for Sodom and Gomorrah, he really um, prays uh, boldly. Um, and, um, you know, this is instructive for us to pray boldly for others. Uh, I heard a, an episode uh, uh, with Luther um, and his good friend Melanchthon. Melanchthon was really sick. Um, once, um, perhaps even dying. And Luther came to visit him, and he, he marched into his room, goes right over to the windows, throws open the shutters, and just boldly takes it to God on behalf of Melanchthon, insisting that God heal Melanchthon and, um, and that uh, they could continue their, their work together. This bold prayer that he offers up for Philip Melanchthon. Uh, we can pray boldly for others. I assaulted God with his own weapons. You might, maybe you were the one that told me that episode. Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. <clears throat> uh, weapons of, uh, I mean, like, yeah, the word, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Abraham's trust allowed him to be so bold, persistent, and almost obnoxious. I mean, he's haggling with God in this episode here. And it's reminiscent of, of that parable that Jesus t tells in Luke chapter 18 about this widow and an unjust judge. And this, this widow just comes to this judge and is just nagging him, persistent, to the point where this unjust judge, I mean, this is a corrupt judge, he's, he's, he's kind of a jerk, but he gives in to this woman just so that she would leave him alone. He's like, if I don't give in to this woman... She's going to drive me crazy. And, um, and then Jesus says, you know, how much more? I mean, if an unjust judge gives in to nagging, how much more would a loving, gracious father give in? Um, and so he says, pray repeatedly. Pray honestly. Pray earnestly. Be obnoxious in prayers if you need to be. Isaac's birth invites us to ask for anything we need from God, no matter how unlikely it might seem. Um, as we'll see, as God delivers on his promise, um, it just shows us, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Um, uh, he delivers. He delivers. And so we can ask, we can pray boldly. I mean, and Jesus talks about this, you know. Tell the mountain to jump into the, to the sea or things like that. You can pray boldly. At the same time, however, 
Sodom and Gomorrah illustrate that God can and may well refuse to fulfill our most earnest pleas. And pray boldly, but it, it, you know, it might not be a part of God's plan there. Um, Abraham bargained the Lord down, um, and, uh, but um, of course, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah ended up still being destroyed, as, we, as, you, as you read in chapter 19. Um, and so it, sometimes um, our prayers and our, our hopes don't, don't come through. In the New Testament, of course, we see this in the garden, um, Jesus in the garden. Um, this is not a bargain, uh, it, it's a plea, but, um, but, you know, he says, take this cup away from me, take this cup. But, he says, thy will be done, thy will be done. And God's will was not to spare him for that, from that ordeal, but to put him through it, to put uh, Christ through it, not to be cruel, but for the highest possible good, right? Um, it's the same for us. He refuses um, only in love. Um, unfortunately, sometimes God's refusal to answer our prayers in the way that we would like him to answer our prayers uh, drives people away from him. You know, you let so-and-so die from cancer or this tragedy happen or this or that. Um, and, and that's unfortunate. Um, uh, but, um, you know, we do cling to that uh, promise from Romans, Romans 8 that all things work together for our good, although sometimes that good is hidden from us, isn't it? You know, as I talked to my friend who lost their 38-week, um, you know, uh, infant in utero, it's like, how do you see the good in that? It's really hard. It's really hard. You know, and she's telling me, she's like, um, I'm not really happy with God right now. I'm angry. And of course, of course, you know, but God can take that. Um, but with that good, whatever good is there, it's, it's hidden. Um, um, and, uh, and, and we just take it by faith that God knows what he's doing and we can trust in him because he's a good God, right? Um, but these episodes today kind of, kind of cause us maybe to question that. Um, and so we'll be... So... Um, some lessons about, about prayer there. Um, I want to talk about uh, another interesting aspect of this story, and that's the posture of Abraham's inter interceding here. Verse 22 says, The men turned from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Now, uh, theologically, we say that standing before the Lord, uh, or as Luther liked to note, quorum Deo, before the Lord, that is our natural position and relationship before God. We are before the Lord, right? Um, and, and, and what does that mean? Well, we come before the Lord as, as sinners, uh, and then he, he uh, redeems us so that now we can be before the Lord in right relationship with him, but we are under him, under his power and his judgment. However, um, you may notice if in your Bibles you might have a text note for verse 22 there. Um, and there's an interesting text note that notes that an ancient, ancient tradition reads instead of Abraham standing before the Lord, it says, While the Lord remained standing before Abraham. Does anyone have that 
note in their Bibles. You've got it. You've got it. Um, so there are some early versions, some, some versions of Genesis that switch the positions of God and Abraham so that God stands before Abraham and Abraham stands over God, which is not where Abraham's supposed to be. This is really an interesting, uh, interesting scene here. Um, and yet graciously, God hears him out. You know, Abraham says, far be it from you to do such a thing. Almost a scolding of God. To slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? I mean, imagine a puny old man uh, lecturing the Lord like this, the Almighty like this. And yet the... the the uh, puny old man continues, and he haggles him down like a, a guy at a, in a marketplace. You know, what if there are 50 righteous, 45 righteous, 40, 30, uh, 20, do I hear 10, right? And, and, and the Lord meets Abraham's request without hesitation every single time. Yeah, yeah if, there's, if there's 20, I won't destroy it. If there's 10, I will not destroy it. Uh, for the sake of ten, I will, I will not destroy it. And then it says, the Lord continued on his way. And in verse thir- uh, 33 says that Abraham, who had been standing over the Lord, returned to his place. So an interesting note on, on positioning there. It's, it's fascinating. Abraham, interceding in faith for wicked and evil people, lecturing God on how to be just and fair. I wonder, are we a bit jealous of Abraham here? Um, are you jealous of Abraham's position and boldness to God? Because if we're honest, we love to lecture. We love to stand over people to dictate what is right and wrong, what people ought to and ought not to do. And we have self-righteousness oozing out of our stances, overflowing through our posts and signs and positions. In Hutchinson, over the last year, yard signs have become fashionable um, or, or other things. My, my neighbor, uh, who, or not my neighbor, my friend who's an uh, e-free pastor in Hutchinson, um, his neighbors put up some rather vulgar political flags um, with some uh, profanity on them. And uh, his, uh, my friend's mom from California was in town, and uh, she had the opposite political view of, of the neighbor and uh, did not like the profanity. So when she got back to California, she called the Hutchinson police on my friend's neighbor. <laughs> my friend wasn't very happy about that because uh, the, the neighbor wrote an editorial into the town paper that said, we were going to take our flags down. Now we're going to get two. <laughs> and so, so and, and Mike put two and two together. He's like, Mom, did you call the police on my neighbor? Um, and, uh, well, then uh, uh, a couple of weeks later, the flags came down. Turns out they were put their house, the neighbors put their house on the market, so they took the flags down. But then, like, a week later, the flags were back up, and so Mike knew that uh, they had sold their house. And uh, so... Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, we love, you know, we, we see the yard signs and the flags, you know, uh, 
showing our stances, lecturing those that drive by or walk by or that live next to us, right? We feel that uh, God needs to be directed or reshaped or reformed to meet my agenda. We echo Abraham here. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That is, just as I say, right? But that's not interceding in faith. That's interceding in ignorance, interceding in rebelliousness, interceding in sin. I ran across this crazy article that talked about how in China there's a school textbook and it's published by their communist government-run press. And it's got a new take on uh, the, the episode from John chapter 8 of the woman caught in adultery. Um, and it begins, to, it begins by paralleling that, uh, that gospel account. Um, the crowd, you know, drags the woman uh, before Jesus. He starts to, to, to write or draw in the sand, which is going to be one of the first questions I ask Jesus. Is like, what were you doing in the sand there? You know, I just, I'm so curious. And, uh, um, you know, you remember what Jesus says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone, right? And uh, in, in John 8, it's, you know, the, everyone drops the rocks, they leave, and uh, Jesus looks up and says, does no one condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, right? But the, the communist textbook offers a different version of the story. The textbook explains that when the crowd disappeared and Jesus looked up and saw the woman alone, that he grabbed a rock and crushed her skull with it. And in the episode he says, I too am a sinner, but if the law could only be executed by men without blemish, blemish the law would be dead. Interesting. So in in Genesis 18, we find that the only righteous one, the only righteous one, intercedes in faith for the potentially righteous. Abraham, who is righteous, is interceding for any potential righteous people within Sodom and Gomorrah. In uh, communist John 8, There are no righteous, not even the one who's supposed to be righteous. Jesus is depicted as a sinner. Nevertheless, death must be carried out or the law would be dead. But in John chapter 8, the only righteous one intercedes on behalf of an unrighteous one in the face of many unrighteous ones. And the true gospel is this the one righteous man in a world of Sodom and Gomorrahs against an unrighteous humanity, bad apples arrogantly attempting to stand over God and under the demands of an unyielding, fair, and just law, dies, is crucified. So that the righteous can't, the unrighteous can be righteous so that the law would be dead so that we could live. One of my favorite theologians, um, Chad Bird from the 
1517 group. He's going to be speaking here next year. Um, it's a good week to sign up for. He's, I've been loving, he's got this daily devotion where he kind of unpacks a Hebrew word um, from the Old Testament uh, every day. It's, it's fascinating. But he um, puts Genesis 18 like this. He says, Then I said, O let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He said, For the sake of ten I will not destroy it. But ten righteous people were not found in the world. And I too was found among the unrighteous. So I took my place among them to await the fire and brimstone. And suddenly I heard a new voice above me. It was saying to the Lord, If you find one righteous man in the world, will you spare it? The Lord answered, If I find one righteous man in the world, and that man is willing to stand in the place of all the unrighteous men in the world and suffer the penalty under the, uh, that all the unrighteous deserve, then I will spare it. And the voice said, Behold, here I am. And there was silence in heaven. And the sun stood still in the sky. And the world ceased its spinning. And all creation ground to a halt. And there was felt all around the world the heat from falling fire. And there was smelled all around the world the burning of brimstone. And there was heard all around the world the boom of a pounding hammer. And there resounded all around the world the cry of a righteous man who prayed for an unrighteous world. And finally, three words from that voice echoed down the streets of Sodom and, and the alleys of Gomorrah and the skyscrapers of New York City and the beautiful uh, property of Mount Carmel. And the voice said, it is finished. And the Lord looked down from heaven and said, I have laid on the one righteous man the iniquity of the world. I made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him you might become my righteous. Why would God do such a thing? Because he loves you. That's why because he loves you. So, you know, I think when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah, um, it, it, you know, in, in, the, in the, the motives of God, um, if you don't look at it um, through the cross, you're going to, you're going to stumble. It, it's going to... Um, cause some frustration. It's going to give you a, an interesting view of God, right? Um, probably one that reflects the view of God that a lot of other world religions have. But when you look at through the cross, um, it changes everything. Any questions or, or thoughts on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? We kind of have to rush through our uh, sessions here today. We don't have a lot of time to dwell, but I want to give you a little bit of time to dwell on these things. Here's a microphone for you. I'm just wondering, was Lot considered to be 
uh, without sin? You know, I, that's a good question. I, I, uh, I don't know that it says, I think Lot was spared for Abraham's sake, um, mostly. Um, that's my take on it. I don't know that he was uh, a righteous man or not, yeah. Yeah. Maybe some other people. Instance, Lot um, is visited by, um, you know, men who wanted to get in to his home, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and for Lot to say, "Well, oh, um, I, I can give you my daughter," you know, right. instead. Yeah. Um, so I just wondered if those men wanted to get in and be with the other men who were mm -hmm. there, or what? It's an interesting. Um, you know, you see the hospitality in the beginning of chapter 18 and then just the, the chaos uh, of, um, you know, chapter 19. Um, much different views of how you treat guests, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I got some, just uh, some discussion questions that I'm not going to give you too long to discuss. So there. But... Um, uh, can you recall a situation when you tried to bargain with God? And how did that go for you? Um, I think sometimes we do say, look, Lord, if you let me pass this test, or Lord, if you just do this, you know. Um, how might the promises about prayer in Genesis 18 and then Luke 18, which is that uh, parable of the persistent uh, widow, affect how you pray? How do they address the questions of whether God answers our prayers? Um, so Abraham's prayers in 18 and the widow's uh, persistent praying. Uh, how do they address questions of whether God answers your, our prayers? And then how do you reconcile the God who afflicts Pharaoh, um, uh, as in the Egypt story, with plagues, and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with God as revealed in, uh, in Jesus? So um, take, uh, I'll give you 10 minutes to, to mull this over with uh, uh, those around you. Take 10 minutes to uh, uh, dive into these and, uh, and then we'll, we'll get on to our next session. We move on. I want to give uh, just a, a quick opportunity if anyone, if there was something that really... Uh, was an aha moment for you or a question that uh, you had? Yeah. All right, we got one here. Yeah, Gail made note that um, it's obvious that God is not contrary for us nagging. Is not contrary for us nagging? Right, right. The, the widow woman and, and Abram, mm -hmm. or Abraham uh, kept nagging and nagging. So it must be something that... Uh, at least is in part for God's yeah. heart. Yeah, shows his patience too, doesn't it? Yeah. Nag away, I think is the, you know, he does not mind. Good. Anyone else real quick before we uh, move on? Yeah, David. I had a, oh. <laughs> I had a thought about the nagging too because I've always been confused by that because I'm not going to wear God down with my like human self. But what came to mind for me this morning was that each time that you're praying about that thing that you're nagging God about, you're putting it back into his hands. Mm -hmm. 
So it's like he's shaping you mm-hmm. by you asking for this thing, even if he's never going to grant it. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gave it a new meaning for me. Yeah, yeah, I like that. One thing, I think it is a gift of prayer. I mean, prayer is a gift. I don't always have it. And I often rely on other people's prayers. I'm, I do rather than, and then my friend, my prayer partner for several years says, do less, pray more. Mm. And I think that's true. The other thing about this is, uh, in the Old Testament, I believe, and maybe you could probably remember where I can't, I, a couple of times at least it says and God changed his mind mm. and I don't know which situations those were but the I mean this I guess uh, you, know, you think of uh, um, when uh, the golden calf incident and God was like okay Moses we're just going to start over with you and Moses kind of like Abraham intercedes, um, says, you know, you got to think about your reputation here and stuff. And, and so, uh, you know, and then, and then it seems like God kind of changes his mind there. And then Moses goes and ask, acts harshly, you know, and, and, um, as opposed to God. Um, that's the one kind of, um, uh, that's, the, you know, another episode I can think of. Anyone else think of another one? God repented of the evil that he was going to do in the Moses episode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and so what's with that, right? I mean, uh, God's perfect and almighty and, and, uh, you know, that's, um, you know, I, I kind of look at that as, um, you know, scriptures written by, by humans. It's not, uh, like the Quran, for instance, they believe that was dictated. Right. Um, and this was, kind of the author's perspective of what's happening there. I kind of look at it that way a little bit. I, I also think of um, the, the, I guess, the New Testament um, version might be Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. Is that, do you guys remember that one? Where uh, she's like, you know, hey, I, I'll take even the scraps and stuff. And, and Jesus seems to change his mind there or have a kind of a, a shift in, in thinking. Um, Again, that's that's above my pay grade a little bit to understand what's happening there. Is is you know, can can the all-knowing God be um, wrong? Can he can it be uh, have his mind changed? I, I don't know. Maybe some other people have a perspective on that. Just thinking how sometimes we have this idea that is kind of just otherworldly about God and his sovereignty and how he's got things figured out and who's in and out even like election predestination Mm -hmm. but the scripture just forces us back down to earth all the time you know what I mean and that God is a relational God he wants to be in conversation with Abraham and Moses and me and you and how the Mm -hmm. how the unseen mysterious stuff works is kind of like you said above our pay grade I mean um, so we enjoy the conversation or don't enjoy it sometimes i mean we're just but we're in it because yeah. we're, we're and god is committed to conversation and so and it encourages us to pray then it encourages us to um to to bring our 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 
requests and our hopes and our, and our fears to, to the Lord. Yeah, to. Well, and, and just following up on that, you know, with, well, with Abraham or with the, Syro, the Syro-Phoenician woman who says, you know, you know let, you know, even, even the dogs under the tables eat the, or what Jesus says, mm-hmm. even the dogs under. How is that? Oh, yeah, you know, Jesus says, let's first feed the children. It's not mm-hmm. good to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, which mm-hmm. seems like, of, of all the things in the New Testament, to me, is one of the most troubling that mm-hmm. Jesus would say such a thing. But, it's, but then the woman comes back and says, even the scraps under the table. Yeah. There's, a, uh, there's a Norwegian hymn which just it's, really takes up on that theme and says, um, I'm going to be like that woman, and I'm going to keep on asking no matter what. Yeah. And, and that just kind of, I've, I've kind of taken that as that, yeah, I'm going to be like that woman. I'm going to, if, even if it feels like there's no answer or the answer is, is no, yeah. I'm going to be like that woman. And, and, and so, I mean, she's really a great example of somebody who keeps on believing and she keeps on trusting in Jesus even in the face of, well, what right. she had. And Abraham is also that in the same way, as an example for us in, in keeping on, in keeping on believing even when it's, it's hard. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Sounds like a great hymn, although, do you really want Ludafis crumbs? You know, I don't know. Phyllis, did you have something? Yeah. After dwelling on this this morning, you know, God changed his mind, and I'm just wondering if he's teaching us that we can change our mind and our lives. And he keeps doing that. Every now and then, he changes his mind, you know. Mm-hmm. And I never thought of that until this morning when we were discussing. Mm-hmm. He taught me a lesson that I can change my mind. That's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not too, too much for him. It sure, certainly isn't for us. <clears throat> So with the idea of God changing his mind, I don't look at it in terms of God being right or wrong, but that he's in a relationship with these people. And sometimes with a relationship, you have to think of how is this relationship going to be built or how is it going to be destroyed? So if he's changing his mind, he's making a choice to build that relationship and keep it going. That's uh, that's good insight, uh, Ginger. And you think of... I mean, just how, how it just shows how far he would go. I mean, this commitment to this nobody wandering old man, Abraham, and he's willing to meet him, you know, uh, there. That's, that's incredible to think about. Well, um, I want to move on to spend some time um, on uh, this next one because it's probably one of the most important um, uh, pieces of the Abraham narrative and also one of the most difficult ones. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, chapter 22. Maybe one of the most difficult chapters of the whole Bible. Um, A story that's well known but hard to grasp. Um, On my uh, ESV um, Bible here, it... it, um, you know, the, the section header there is the sacrifice of Isaac. Does anyone have a different header uh, there? The command to sacrifice Isaac. 
Abraham tested, testing of Abraham. Yeah. So let me read this and then we'll, we'll dig into it here. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his, in his hand the fire and the knife. So they, both, uh, they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, in order, to, in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. <clears throat> I remember a number of years ago, I was on a mission trip to Washington, D.C., uh, it was with the youth work strip, and there was a, kind of a, a worship gathering on one of the evenings. And um, the theme of that night was sacrifice. And at some point um, in the service, they offered um, kind of an open mic um, for uh, people to come up and talk about sacrifice. And um, so I decided to get up and share the obvious story, the, the story that came to my mind, this story from Genesis 22. Um, and recount the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. And as I was doing that, I noticed like <clears throat> one of the leaders from another church that was uh, in our group with us just got really, really agitated. And she was fidgety, and she was scowling and shaking her head the whole time. And then um, when I went and, and started relating this episode to Jesus in the New Testament, I mean, she just was vigorously shaking her head. Um, she really did not like my sharing, and um, she, she didn't talk to me for the rest of the trip. I have no idea why, but um, she uh, clearly just, this was a, a very offensive story to her. Um, and at first glance, and maybe even second glance, 
maybe you can see why. The story begins in the same way that Abraham's encounter, first encounter with God did. God comes with a command, and Abraham obeys. Again, without any textual hint of any kind of uh, reaction, like emotional or uh, a reaction, inner turmoil or doubt, just obedience, right? He simply proceeds in faith with an otherworldly faith. It's amazing, it's admirable, and it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Genesis 22, however, um, uh, he's, he's told to go, to follow a promise, um, but it's different. Um, uh, you know, in, in 12, he's told to, to pursue this promise, to be a great nation, to start a family. Um, and yeah, it's going to cause upheaval, as we've been seeing for this 75-year-old man, uh, there was a lot of incentive to follow, right? From barrenness to promise, right? From no hope to hope, from no future to future. For, so in Genesis 12, um, we can see why he would make such a radical move. 22, however, in chapter 22, it's a whole different story. God's ask is much, much different here. Instead of following the promise... He's uh, uh, told to kill the promise, isn't he? To sacrifice everything. And incredibly, Abraham does. No questions asked. He proceeds in faith, and it seems like a senseless faith here. Verse 1 says, God tested Abraham. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. And we talked in, in um, session one, or in the first day, about uh, how many different traditions trace their uh, tradition back to Abraham. Um, and this is going to be one of those traditions that is different depending on uh, the tradition you come from. Um, if, uh, if you are, um, I think, both Baha'i and, of course, Islam uh, has a very different take on this story. Um, and, and they point to this verse as proof. So uh, their take is that it was not Isaac that Abraham took to sacrifice, but that it was Ishmael. Um, and you can see here, it says, take your son, your only son, well, Isaac wasn't his only son, was he? Uh, Ishmael um, had like 15 years of being the only son. And so in Islam, uh, this episode, it takes place with Ishmael and takes place before the birth of Isaac. Um, and Islam has a very different kind of telling of it. In Islam, uh, Ishmael was um, very accommodating for this sacrifice um, and uh, kind of you know, almost helped Abraham with it. Um, but uh, so you can see the kind of a, a departure here uh, in, the, in the way that, that these traditions understand this episode in the life of Abraham. Can you even imagine this though? Um, not only is Abraham called 
to sacrifice his child, which is unimaginable in itself. But he's called to sacrifice the child that he's waited 25 years for. And even more than that, this is the child of the promise. Um, Isaac is the one they've spent 25 years wandering and waiting for. And now God says, throw it all away. How is that possible? How can God ask that? Not to mention, this is the second time that Abraham has had to sacrifice a son. I think someone brought this up the first day. Right before this, at the end of of chapter 21, after Isaac is born, we have the second Hagar and Ishmael um, account, uh, episode in in, uh, this this narrative. Um, As Ishmael is mocking Isaac, Sarah's had enough, and she says, get rid of of those two. And, um, uh, And there's some interesting parallels here in the two stories. You'll have to go back and read from chapter 21. But in both cases, uh, the promise, promises are in jeopardy. Um, in this case, of course, with Isaac, uh, the promise is going to be sacrificed. Um, but in the Ishmael case, it's the promise that God made to Ishmael as they're in the wilderness dying of thirst. Um, those promises made to Ishmael don't look very promising. In both stories, Abraham has to rise early in the morning, um, one to, to banish and the other time to, to uh, start the journey with Isaac. In both stories, an angel intervenes and calls out, one to Hagar, one to Abraham. In both stories, uh, they're, they're, uh, they look up. Hagar looks up and sees. Abraham looks up and sees. There's some just really interesting Um, parallels in the two kind of sacrifice accounts here. Um, And that's one way we can understand, actually, if we take into account the later half of chapter 21, that's one way we can understand the only son line here. Um, Because Ishmael is gone. Um, Ishmael has gone out with with Hagar, and so Isaac is now uh, the only son here. Um, And so that's one way we can kind of reconcile that, uh, um, that inclusion there. All of this brings us back to those questions that Walter Brueggemann had, po- had posed. Can God be trusted? And will Abraham trust the promise? Can we trust this God? And will we trust this God? Um, and, um, <clears throat> you know, we can assume that, I mean, I got to imagine that Abraham wrestled with these kinds of thoughts. But in reality, the text provides no proof of that. It simply says that early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. He even makes Isaac carry the wood um, unknowingly, which is, if that's not a shadow of Christ, I think, you know, carrying the cross, it's pretty amazing. When they reach the place, Isaac then allows himself to be bound and lays on the wood And Abraham prepares to sacrifice his own child to slit his throat with a knife. I mean, this is senseless faith here. Nothing about this story makes sense. Why would God ask this? Why would Abraham do this? 
And why would Isaac go along with it? Um, we don't have detail of struggle um, on the part of Abraham or on the part of Isaac. Well, the story uh, is even more senseless when you look closer. The story presents an interesting dilemma with God. <clears throat> in the beginning of the story, um, in the beginning of chapter 22, we see God as the tester. And yet at the end, he is the provider. He provides a ram for the sacrifice. The tester and the provider. <clears throat> John Calvin observes that the command and the promise of God are in conflict. And the command to do this uh, and the promise to provide this seem to be in conflict here uh, in this story. Luther says, this is a contradiction in which God contradicts himself. What is happening here with God? The promise is that through Isaac you will have many descendants. The command is that Isaac must be killed. You can't have the first if you have the second. But God promised the first. Does he keep his promise? Yet he commanded the second. Does he, do we obey his command? Walter Brueggemann observes, he says, The life of Abraham, then, is set by this text in the midst of a contradiction between the testing of God and the providing of God, between the sovereign freedom which requires complete obedience and the gracious faithfulness which gives good gifts between the command and the promise, and between the word of death which takes away and the word of life which gives. I mean, what an interesting dynamic at play in this story here. He goes on to say that faithful people will be tempted to want only half of it, the God who provides, not a God who tests. And that makes sense, right? Uh, we naturally want a God who is nice, who hands out gifts and provides for our every need. And to think that we might be tested, that we might be judged, it's not what we signed up for. We reject that kind of God. We don't want a God that that's that demanding. We don't want a God who would want it all. That's exactly what God wants. I remember a confirmation sermon uh, that my uh, colleague preached a number of years ago when he told the confirmands, he said, you know, um, God does not want to be the best part of your life. Um, which is like, what? You know, you'd think like he'd want to be the best part, you know? I mean, you got sports and, and activities and school, but you know, make Jesus first. Like, that makes sense to me. That's, you know. But he said, no, he doesn't want to be the best part of your life. He, does, he doesn't settle for parts. He wants all of you. He wants it all. I am a jealous God, he says. You shall have no other gods before me. Nothing should get in the way of your love for me, he commands. Not your job, not your wealth, not the Minnesota Vikings preaching to myself. 
Not even the kid that you waited 25 years for who always also happens to be the fulfillment of the promise, even the promise that I gave you. And surprisingly, Abraham seems to get this. Despite failing in faith so many times in his life, he never wavers here. He understands that God commands, that he tests And yet at the same time, and in the face of the apparent death of the promise, Abraham still believes that God provides. There's a couple of hints here. Um, In his instructions to the servants, he says, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Notice the pronouns used there at the end. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Perhaps Abraham is still clinging to the promise despite the command. Then there's his conversation with his son. Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went off together. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Maybe he's just beating around the bush there. Or maybe this is a statement of faith, even when it seems like senseless faith. Thousands of years later, An anonymous New Testament writer wrote of Abraham's senseless faith in this story. The author of Hebrews writes, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham intended to obey God's horrible command, even if it seemed apparent that it would crush the promise. And yet, Abraham still clung to the promise. He still believed the promiser. He had no idea how God would provide. He only trusted that God would provide, even if that meant raising Isaac from the dead. That is senseless, amazing faith. Genesis 22, 14 says that Abraham named the place Yahweh Yara which means the Lord will provide, or maybe the Lord will see to it. He knew that God would provide. He had faith. He didn't know how. Even if he followed through and God raised him from the dead, even to that extent, that's what the author of Hebrews says. So Walter Brueggemann, I love his observation here. A popular question out of the narrative may be whether God tests in such a way, but an even more difficult question is whether God provides 
in such a way? Do we trust that God will provide even in the face of such uh, senseless uh, uh, demand um, or circumstances? But he has, hasn't he? In fact, I believe the only way to truly come to terms with this horrible story in which God would command a man to sacrifice his promised son is again to read it in the shadow of the cross of Christ where we see God the Father sacrifice his only beloved promised son. Chad Bird makes the connection. He says, uh, God says to Abraham, uh, you have not withheld your beloved son from me. And then Paul in Romans says, God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. Well, the word from withheld in the Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint, and spare in Romans is the same Greek word. Um, they're making, he's making this connection there. It was there on the cross where the Lord provided, where the Lord saw to it to finally bring the promise of Abraham to fulfillment. Like Isaac, the Son of God carried the wood of his execution up the mountain. But once there, while a ram was provided to die in Isaac's place, the Lamb of God himself was provided to die in our place. And these stories of, of a loving father asked to sacrifice his beloved son and of a loving heavenly father who went all the way and sent his son to die, they are incomprehensible. They are even offensive, causing us to vigorously shake our head. But they are also the power of God for salvation. So rejoice that the God who tests is also the God who provides. The God who commands is a God of grace. That Isaac lived, that Jesus died. That Abraham kept the faith and that that same faith has been given to you. Lord God, we give you thanks for your radical love for us. That you... Um, you did what, um, what is incomprehensible, what we can't understand. We stumble even thinking about it. But Lord, we receive the benefits of it. That you sent your son to die as a sacrifice for us because we are broken sinners. We thank you, Lord, for the faith of Abraham and ask that you would give us such faith to cling to you even in the most dire of circumstances, even when the promise is threatened in the most significant way, to know that you are the promise keeper. Make us bearers of that promise, always. Strengthen our faith in it. May we cling to it, especially in the darkest of times. Help us as we struggle with these stories and these accounts um, to see your goodness in the midst of, uh, of difficult and hard to understand um, narratives. Um, and we thank you for our children uh, that you've entrusted to us and that because of Jesus, we would never uh, have to go that far. Um, but Lord, that uh, 
You've entrusted them to us to raise, to know you. Strengthen us in that endeavor. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I got some doozies here for you. The author of Genesis gives very little insight as to what Abraham was feeling during all of this. What do you think was going through his head uh, in this episode? Fill in the blanks. What do you think Isaac was thinking and feeling as well? God made and delivered a glorious promise to Abraham, but now that promise was under a real threat. In the same way, through word and sacrament, God makes a glorious promise to us. What threatens that promise? And finally, how does the death and resurrection of the Son of God cast this story in a whole new light? Um, I believe there's some snacks back there as well. So you can grab a, a couple of snacks and, uh, and grab a couple of folks and chew on these questions together. Thank you for joining us today on the Mount Carmel podcast. We hope that you will join us again in the future as Dave Wan continues his teaching and we continue to publish other music, teaching, and preaching from Mount Carmel. You are good.